Welcome into the Leadership Legacy Podcast, where we interview influential leaders, learn the why, and how they turn their passions into progress that set them on the path to leaving their legacy. Admiral John Franklin Calhoun, U.S. Navy, retired in the Calhoun Cottage on the Cortoman River. Correct. Happens to be my father-in-law. Uh, it's a distinct honor um, to be uh, in your family, but also to to lead your your daughter and your grandkids, but also to sit down here and and just talk with you a little bit today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Tony. Well, Jack, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I uh, grew up in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, went to the uh, Missouri School of what was then known as the Missouri School of Mines and Metallurgy. It's now the Missouri University of Science and Technology in Rolla, Missouri, and uh, went there for uh, nine semesters of Army ROTC, and I failed to graduate uh, because I developed a strong passion for, uh, I thought I wanted to be a Blue Angel, uh, and I knew I couldn't be in the Army and do that. <clears throat> so I uh, got absolved of my obligation to join the Army, and I joined the Navy as a Naval Aviation Cadet. And what year was that? Uh, 1957. So is that where your, is that kind of where your love of flying um, and piloting well, uh, came I, from? I had two fraternity brothers who had just returned from the Korean conflict, or early Korean conflict, I guess maybe after the Korean conflict, but they were both Navy fighter pilots, and they would take me up to Naval Air Station in St. Louis, and I'd drink milkshakes while they went out and did their thing. Mm -hmm. And then my father had a farm down in southern Missouri, I was mucking out the stable one day. It was hot and I was tired of the horse manure and, and they, uh, these two guys came down and I put on a little impromptu air show for the neighbors and, uh, and I told my dad then, I said, you know, I'm going to do that. Uh, so that's when I decided I was going to be a Navy pilot. I guess back in the, back in the fifties, I mean, in 57, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily something that a lot of people uh, were doing. Well, that was in 1955, actually. Okay. That event occurred where I made up my mind. Okay. Uh, so. So, fast forward just a few years later, and you're, a you're getting, years later, you're I, getting uh, ready to do that. Yeah, it took a while to get go through the, all the wickets, but uh, mm-hmm. by the time I actually raised my hand and got sworn into the Navy, uh, it was uh, it was in 1957, May of May of 1957. So take us a little bit through that process of, you know, learning how to fly and and getting that first assignment. Uh, well, uh, I think military flight training, be it Air Force or uh, or Navy, is probably the best flight training in the world. And of course, it's uh, it's free to the individual. Uh, there's an obligated amount of service after you get designated as a naval aviator or an Air Force pilot. 
but uh, but you're very thoroughly trained and uh, fairly by contemporary standards, by civilian standards, a very experienced pilot by the time you get your wings. So uh, that's what I'll say about about naval flight training. Mm -hmm. um, and I I wanted to fly jets, but the needs of the Navy prevailed, so I was given a choice of. Uh, uh, multi-engine land planes or multi-engine seaplanes and having uh, kind of an unusual for a guy from the Ozarks, an unusual love of water, I chose seaplanes. And uh, after seaplane training, I uh, joined my first squadron, which was deployed to the Philippines and uh, flew seaplanes in the Philippines for six months and then uh, the squadron returned to San Diego and we started transitioning and flew two kinds of P2V Neptunes and P3s, uh, uh, Orions. And then I left the squadron and went to a training squadron and uh, served there for a couple of years. And then went to, went to postgraduate school at Monterey and got a bachelor's degree in international relations. And uh, while I was there, I uh, renewed my efforts to uh, be a jet pilot. Uh, instead of being a jet pilot, I got orders to a seaplane tender. <laughs> and after about uh, six months in the seaplane tender, uh, I finally got orders to jet transition. So I went to Kingsville, Texas and became a jet pilot. And uh, that was really the beginning of my career. I, uh, I didn't, uh, I was, I had a I was going to be an American airline pilot, mm -hmm. and the more I thought about that, the more I thought I probably wouldn't be a very good airline pilot. I figured I'd probably be asleep in the cockpit more often <laughs> than not. So fortunately, I did get a chance to fly jets, and that uh, pretty much sealed my career. I had a had a good career in the in the light attack community, and mm -hmm. uh, enjoyed every minute of it. And I've always said the worst day I've ever had at sea was uh, better than my best day in the Pentagon, so. <laughs> it's always fun to be hands-on, not pushing not pushing the pen and the paper. That, that's where the fun is in the Navy. It's in the operational end of the Navy for most people. Mm -hmm. A few people like the bureaucracy, but uh, I never was very good at that. Mm -hmm. Well, um, what was it like to, you, you've done training, um, now you're, you're you're getting ready to approach uh, um, an aircraft carrier or something like that. What's that feeling like? when you're getting ready to touch down? Oh, you mean flying the airplane? Yeah, flying the airplane, oh, yeah. Uh, well, again, the training is superb, and you get a lot of practice on the field. And uh, the first few landings are a little... Uh, and I was a lieutenant commander when I made my first carrier landing. I never got to do that in the training command. Okay. So it was on an F-9F jet. Uh, uh, and it was... Uh, Again, I was ready for it, but it mm -hmm. was a little apprehension, perhaps, yeah. about, mainly about doing it well. And it took me quite a while to learn to do it well. Uh, but uh, but after the first few landings in the daytime, it's uh, it really is turns into fun, and you start trying to refine your techniques and mm -hmm. make it perfect every time. It, which is all about carrier landing. It has to be fairly precise, or you don't catch a wire. Or if it's really out of the ballpark, you probably will hit the ramp and kill yourself. It's a, it's, yeah. I can imagine that. It's it, you have to be very precise. There's not much room for error, not only for yourself but for the carrier and for the people on the deck. Yeah. And well, it, the 
the place where you have to touch down is fairly small. Uh, and that's, but again, in the daytime, that's not a big challenge. But uh, at night, uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, night carrier landings, I think, are uh, unique in many ways. But there's not, uh, not many people that'll say that they enjoy them. Uh, and it takes, for me anyway, total concentration. And uh, it's one of the, probably the only thing I've done repetitively in my life where I didn't find it sometime, my mind wandering or thinking about something else while I was doing it. And I can honestly say that uh, never in my naval aviation career have I, when I was making a night carrier landing, I never thought about anything about that <laughs> except the problem at hand, which yeah. was trying to get, trying to make that landing successful. Uh, yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it said, and you may have told me this uh, in past conversations, it really is like landing something on a postage stamp. Out in the middle of the. Well, you hear that a lot, but there's plenty of room. Yeah, and that's the way the carrier's built, and that's the way the carrier yeah. airplanes are built to land on that small space. Yeah. Uh, short runway. Yeah, and we still see those today, but we see a lot of technology is kind of advanced. You have a lot of these Harrier jets or these other jets that can kind of take off vertically. I know that that, uh, yeah, that probably yeah. helps, but. Uh, the F 18 was, a, I think, a breakthrough for the, uh, certainly for the light attack community. It's. Uh, it's a highly computer-driven airplane, and uh, and it's much easier to land on a carrier than, than not too many generations before. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a whole new concept in, uh, in computer control of an aircraft, so it's made things easier. And uh, the automatic carrier landing system uh, was sort of perfected, I think, with the F-18 because the, the way the computers worked with each other. Uh, it was. It worked instead of the previous airplane, which was the A7 in the light attack community. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. And you never knew what it was going to do. You just <laughs> hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, kind of wild sometimes. Well, what was the uh, what was a closing speed, uh, if you can remember, when you were coming in for for a carrier landing? A7, which was my last extensive carrier experience. Uh, I think the. Approach speed was 130, depends on weight, the weight mm -hmm. of the aircraft, but 130, 140 knots. Uh, and uh, that's airspeed. And you've got a nominal 30 knots over the deck, so about 100 knots or maybe 110 knots. Yeah. Uh, actual landing speed, closure speed, mm -hmm. which is not unreasonable. Yeah, that's pretty fast, though. And, um, okay, well, that's awesome. Um, what was the... And we'll transition more to the commanding side in a little in a little while. But what was maybe the hardest thing uh, in going through that process? Um, you know, being a, a lot attack pilot was it was it the training? Was it the you know months and months at sea? Was it being away from family? You know what what was the hardest thing about that? Well, being away from family is difficult, of course. Um, but it's what you do if you're in the Navy, and mm -hmm. all sailors do it. Uh, you sign up for it. Uh, you know that when you. When you sign up, that's mm -hmm. right. Um, um, being at sea for extended periods of time uh, is, uh, it takes a certain amount of, I don't know, uh, stoicism, I guess. Uh, but on a carrier, there's uh, a lot of people, a lot of, uh, a lot of space. Uh, the ride is pretty smooth. Uh, I think uh, I slept in a, under a wool blanket in an air-conditioned room. My, 
for my entire carrier career, and that's not always the case in the small ships. The destroyer mm-hmm. type ships are—they ride rough, uh, uh, they—they're uh, wet, and they're uncomfortable, and uh, they're not nearly as comfortable air conditioning-wise as the carriers usually are. So, so it's not a lack of comfort, um, and being in the air wing. You get a chance to take off and go see something else every day. So it's uh, the ship's company people don't get to do that. They, they're uh, on the ship for maybe two or three months at a time sometimes, uh, which is pretty demanding. We'll transition in a little bit. Um, what drives you to get up in the morning and to, and to just take on another day or when you were a pilot or when you were a commanding officer or when you were uh, in the public sector? What were some of the, some of the things that drive you to just to keep going? Probably the most significant driver is being in love with your job. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I'm sure there were exceptions that I've probably blocked out of my historical memory, but uh, for the most part, uh, I love flying airplanes and I love the men and machinery that I had to work with, uh, the men and machines. So it was a treat to get up in the morning and uh, either man up an airplane and go flying or... Uh, or to, in a command situation to go deal with the, the people that I had working for me, mm-hmm. which almost invariably were extremely talented, hardworking people. And uh, so that made every day a pleasure. There were exceptions. And occasionally you run across somebody that uh, doesn't perform like you wish they would. Mm-hmm. And I always tried to get the best out of everybody that I could. Occasionally I would fail. Mm-hmm. and uh, had to fire somebody, but uh, that was rare. And I've just been blessed with, probably the secret of my career success is that I've been blessed with having good people around mm-hmm. uh, Because nobody can do it by themselves, and when you see a guy that, whose career bogs down or fails, generally he might fail to lead in a proper fashion, but mm-hmm. most likely he just wasn't gifted, wasn't blessed with a good crew. And I, again... Yeah, that's important. When when you were looking for someone to, to hire or somebody to work with um, in throughout your career and even even now as you have some as you have people come to work on your home or, or to work alongside people in the community, what are some of the things that you look for in a, in in somebody like that? Well the Navy's a little different than the civilian community and, and living here in the northern neck of Virginia is especially unique. So I'll start with this. Uh, this is called the promised land, where people will promise you something, and then, uh, <laughs> and then they never show up. It's uh, so. So when I'm trying to find somebody to paint my house, uh, the first thing is, uh, do they show up mm-hmm. to uh, make an estimate, give an estimate, or uh, they always say they will, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. So step one is getting somebody that will actually show up to uh, to do the work. Uh, but in the Navy. It's a little bit different. Uh, people in the Navy uh, don't have a choice. They, they show up or go to jail. Uh, yeah. So that makes it a, a little more uh, incumbent upon the individual to, to show up. He's more interested in doing his job, I think. In the Navy, you take the people that, uh, that the chief of naval personnel sends to you, whether okay. they're being enlisted. And there are exceptions to that. And I've, on occasion, I picked, when I was CEO of an aircraft carrier, I had an opportunity to, uh, had a choice of two or three executive officers, uh, so I got to pick the person I thought would be the best. Um, 
And when I was commander of the Naval Training Center, I had a choice of uh, picking my chief of staff, which uh, that's about the only two times I've actually chosen somebody that was going to be, that I was work closely with. Um, so you take what you what you have mm -hmm. and uh, mold it into the what you think it ought to be and uh, turn your squadron or your ship into the most effective, efficient machine that you can. Talking about uh, commanding um, an aircraft carrier, I've got pictures here of the USS Constellation. Um, talk, through us a, talk to us a little bit about how that came about. Um, was that an aircraft carrier that you were stationed on and you rose through the ranks, or no. uh, how did that how did that happen? Uh, carrier COs go straight, usually. Uh, you go straight in a CO of a okay. carrier. You don't, the executive officer does not fleet up to be CO, and there are probably exceptions to that. Uh, and that's not to say that you might not be the executive officer of a carrier and then uh, later be the CO of the same carrier, but uh, that would be unusual just be a happenstance it had. Um, so it's a selection process, and uh, those fortunate few naval aviators that uh, get into the pipeline of possibly getting to command a carrier, first they have to command a smaller ship, which is called a deep draft. And if you do well with your deep draft uh, ship, and that's a picture of the, well, another ship up there, is the USS Detroit, which was my first ship command. and. While I was CEO of that, I was selected to uh, command an aircraft carrier. So uh, that was just good luck and good fortune because uh, many are willing and few are chosen. Is the, is the USS Constellation still in service? Or did... No, neither the Detroit nor the Constellation. And I was previously uh, executive officer of the USS Independence, another aircraft carrier, before Detroit. And uh, all of those ships have been decommissioned, and I guess, uh, I think Constellation's probably still in the process of being salvaged or scrapped. Uh, we laugh about uh, shaving with, uh, with our, all of our old ships. All of my previous ships and squadrons have been decommissioned. But I retired in 1990, so <laughs> it's yeah. been a while. What was your favorite place that you were, uh, you were stationed while you were commanding the Constellation? Well, being the CEO of an aircraft carrier, for me, was the best job in the Navy, and that includes all the flag officer billets that I'm aware of, and mm -hmm. certainly it was better than any any flag billet that I ever had. So uh, I think a carrier CEO is probably one of the most demanding jobs uh, in the Navy, perhaps in the world, mm -hmm. physically and mentally sometimes. Uh, but my, my goal, as far as keeping myself fit was to get four hours consecutive sleep a night and sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't but uh, it was a rare four hours that didn't get interrupted by a phone call uh, at least one maybe a dozen uh, so it's physically demanding but also very reward rewarding because you get to see this wonderful war machine uh, doing its thing uh, mm -hmm. and I did not command the ship during combat we had a couple of opportunities, potential opportunities, back uh, uh, well before 9-11, of course, but uh, uh, there were some hijackings where the uh, uh, Islamic hijackers took the airplane to, on two occasions, took the airplane to Iran, 
and then we went up and stood off the coast of Iran to prepare for whatever we might want to do to resolve the hijacking issue. But mm -hmm. that was as close as we ever came to combat. Um, my least favorite yeah, okay, area least. was the Northern Arabian Sea. Uh, we were there for, uh, I think, close to three months continuously. And <clears throat> the weather was terrible. Uh, uh, it was a constant dust storm. And uh, if you stayed on one heading all night, the uh, dust on the windward side of everything, the red dust from mm. the desert, was uh, caked on everything that, uh, uh, that was exposed. And uh, the temperature was high, the humidity was high, so it was just pretty unpleasant sailing. But aside from that, being at sea and, and underway to a strange and a new, a new Liberty port uh, is always fun. And uh, basically, except for the Northern Arabian Sea, um, the ocean is a beautiful place to live and work. Uh, lots of freedom, good flying, you know, no restrictions about uh, you take off on a ship a thousand miles from any place and you can pretty much fly any way you want to and yeah. nobody's going to put you on report for flat hatting or, or whatever. And of course, occasionally you'll find a ship and you can go let your little boy instincts prevail and show them, <laughs> yeah. hear the sound of freedom yeah. and see a free air show sometimes. Yeah. But again, that's, uh, that's kind of an accepted thing that I think yeah. used to be anyway. <laughs> uh, we'll transition out, out of your military career. Once you, once you got done um, with commanding officer of the USS Constellation, you came to the Pentagon, you did some work there. Um, when you transitioned and you retired out of, out of the Navy, and you came into the into civilian life. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you did then. I mean, you could have you could have just retired and just kind of rested on on all the hard work that you had done, but you 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 wanted some more. So, uh, some more hard work dealing with civilians, I'm sure, is is a lot tougher than dealing with uh, people that will go to jail if they don't do what you say. So, how was? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, I I retired. Uh, from the Navy, maybe a little earlier than I should have, but uh, I had the second obsession of my life. I, the first was I wanted to be a naval aviator, and the second, I wanted to take my family and go ocean sailing. So I actually turned down a final, what would have been a, probably a final set of orders mm -hmm. uh, because I had a daughter that was uh, approaching teenage, and uh, it was time to change her environment. So I took my wife and 12-year-old daughter sailing for two years, uh, and we sailed from Houston, Texas to Annapolis, Maryland via Venezuela and, and the Caribbean Sea. Wow. Uh, and that was a two-year trip uh, that kind of, I'd probably still be doing it, but I lost my all-girl crew. So, uh, But it was very satisfying to me, and it was educational uh, for our daughter and my wife, uh, gave her a choice of moving to Missouri and raising cattle or going sailing. And she said, well, <laughs> she, she thought she'd choose sailing. <laughs> and, uh, and it was basically enjoyable for all of us, although our daughter did not, uh, at the time, appreciate being taken away from her, her uh, friends so much. But, uh, I think it paid dividends. So that was my transition from the Navy to uh, civilian life. It was two years of pretty much a carefree, not an easy life, but a carefree life where you could call your own shots and uh, 
be the captain of your own sailboat and and have your wife and daughter uh, to, to do your bidding. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was an interesting two years. Uh, during that period, uh, we discussed what was going to be next, and uh, Claudia had always, my wife, had always wanted to be, uh, she has had an entrepreneurial instinct that uh, uh, she never got to really fulfill because she'd get a business going, and uh, and after it became fairly well established, well, we'd pick up and move. We mm. moved every 18 to 24 months, so she never had a chance to pursue any one career. So I agreed that uh, that she could take the career lead and I would be supportive. Mm. Uh, so I changed my call sign to uh, Squaw Man and uh, became, became a house husband. And she continued to be a mother, of course, but uh, she also uh, developed a career in the not-for-profit industry and uh, did quite well. And I didn't do much of anything for a while until... Uh, friend came along and asked if I would help do a reorganization of the City Colleges of Chicago. So I became the acting vice chancellor for administrative affairs. I've got to think about the exact title, but I think that was it. And I was acting because Mayor Daley at the time insisted that anybody that worked in Chicago for the city government had to be a resident of Chicago. And we lived north of Chicago in Lake Forest. So mm -hmm. uh, so the chairman of the board who hired me said, I will just get around that. You'll we'll just make you the acting. <laughs> so I spent a couple of years there uh, developing this uh, new concept of organization in the, in the colleges. Was, city College of Chicago is the second largest city college system in the country. It had seven campuses uh, and a headquarters building in, in the loop. And it was very interesting and uh, very educational and very different than the Navy. I went in with, with absolutely no experience in uh, higher education, no experience of significance in the civilian job market, in the civilian community, and it was uh, the fact that I was a retired admiral didn't mean very much to the people that were working for me, and uh, it was sort of difficult to get accepted, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure I ever did succeed, but, uh, but we developed a I guess a mutual understanding. Uh, they learned a little bit about my uh, shortcomings and and uh, maybe strengths and weaknesses, and I the same. You know, I learned about them, and we learned to work together, and mm -hmm. we established what was a fairly difficult, probably transition, but it uh, it worked. And once it was running, I I retired again. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Uh, before that, I actually did a couple of years in. Uh, Kind of the same thing. A uh, guy that I met was when I was in the Navy asked me to come and work for him. And I, uh, to make a long story short, it was a, a privately owned uh, commercial real estate development company. And I was hired to, I wasn't sure exactly what, but I shortly became the executive vice president and uh, tried to do a little development uh, on the East Coast and West Coast and, uh, and hire a few good people and managed the organization as best I could. The owner and manager, pretty much hands-on, so mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have a whole lot of influence, but uh, but that was another interesting experience, that uh, introduction to civilian life. Yeah, and I guess I guess a lot of, of your experience in uh, the, the military with, with very strong discipline, 
Um, but then also commanding a, a ship and the organizational skills that it takes to make that make that machine run, I'm sure helped helped along with you know organizing. I mean, just those organization skills and just the management skills sure. uh, kind of helped with those two. Uh, very much so. Uh, you've got the dynamic aspects of an aircraft carrier. It moves. Uh, you've got navigational problems. You've got uh, machinery problems mm-hmm. uh, that you don't necessarily have in a in a paperwork administrative office situation like like a community college or a real estate development firm. Mm-hmm. So the dynamics aside, it's all about people, mm-hmm. and whether they're at sea on an aircraft carrier making it run, or doing all the administrative functions that, uh, mm-hmm. that it takes to make another organization, a civilian organization, run. Yeah. And you get the right people in the right job and then motivate those right people and reward those right people and do whatever is necessary to let them do their best. Well, there's a, there's a word that when those people aren't doing their best um, and just in life, I think everybody experiences the, the word failure. Um, some people kind of kind of die by that word, and a, but a lot of people also um, kind of use that as a stepping stone. Uh, what do you think of the word failure, and, and how do you deal with it? Well, I think I've never analyzed the word failure, and when I think back, I guess probably been close to failure a couple of times, mm-hmm. um, but I've never fallen into abject failure uh, through the grace of God and good luck and good people lifted me up. I've had a few people, I guess, working for me, very few, fortunately, that did fail. And uh, my goal was to make everybody succeed. And when I found somebody in the wrong job, I tried to find a job that maybe they could be better at. Mm -hmm. On rare occasions, after a couple of attempts at finding something that they fit, that fit them, uh, and failing, when I failed to do that, then I guess I'd have to mark them as failures. my failure. I just couldn't, uh, with a few individuals, very few, probably just a handful mm-hmm. in my entire life, uh, I just couldn't seem to get the job done. So uh, I wished him well and kissed him goodbye. Uh, but that was a very rare, fortunately, in my experience, because most everybody, if they've got any sense of self-respect, will try hard to do to do something. And uh, and most people are good at something if you can just find out what it is. Absolutely, and I, I think, I think with people who who want to continue to grow and people that are successful, and you see them, you know, when they when they make a mistake and they learn from that mistake, you know, that's the important thing is, you know, nobody's going to be perfect, uh, but when you do mess up or you do have a misstep or a mistake or a failure, is learning from okay, well, how did I get there, and then turning around, turning that around so that it doesn't happen again. Some people are smart enough to figure that out by themselves and go through the process that you just described. And some people need a little help with that process. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, that's probably, being a leader, a manager, uh, that's probably one of the most important functions is helping people realize what they haven't realized on their own. Like, son, you're in the wrong job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You ought to try a new career or... uh, I think carrier aviation is a good example of that. Uh, everybody that gets involved in it is very highly driven mm-hmm. and motivated. But a 
especially when it comes to carrier landings and specifically night carrier landings, I've seen several people who were good pilots by almost every standard, but they couldn't quite get the night carrier landing thing down. And I had one friend who killed himself. He was a contemporary, but he was determined that he could do this. And, and he literally killed himself trying. Mm -hmm. And he should have, been, should have been stopped, but for various reasons, he was allowed to continue until failure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so it takes a hard, it's a hard decision. And most people figure it out for themselves and with a little encouragement to mm -hmm. quit, quit with honor and with their lives. You know, so they can um, do their best killing themselves else. and or somebody else. So but that's, that's when you're smart enough to know that this isn't for you, that's not failure. Uh, but aside from that, the dynamics of failure are pretty benign, except maybe to the individual and, and his heart and soul. Well, um, what's the best book that you've read lately? Well, that covers a lot of territory. Yeah. I seem to be hooked on uh, action books like spy novels mm -hmm. <laughs> on the one hand, and I'm, I generally am reading two books at a time, and today I'm reading, what's his name? The author is uh, Vince Flynn, I think, and he's, he's died, but he, he published about a dozen books, I think, and I've read half of them, so that's my action book. And the other one is a uh, trilogy of World War II, and I've read a couple of good books uh, about the Navy in, in the Pacific in World War II. James Hornfisher and Ian Toll are a couple of good authors of uh, do, they write well uh, and uh, do thorough research, and their books about the Navy in World War II are extremely interesting. I think uh, so. Yeah, that's a that's is that a, the question. Yeah, that's what a good perspective. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Is having gone through, um, you know, certain certain things in the military, and then have and then reading maybe somebody you know kind of talking about that. Um, it's well, good when it comes to success and failure. Uh, I think that, again, back to World War II, the USA was blessed in having <laughs> some smart generals and admirals that uh, didn't look too good earlier in their careers, mm -hmm. and that includes Eisenhower, his, our, and I'm just reading about our, our uh, North African invasion, mm -hmm. where Eisenhower was the guy in charge. He was not a particularly good tactical general at the time, it seemed, but uh, obviously had success later mm -hmm. uh, with the invasion of Europe, but uh, a recent book uh, about Ch a biography of Chester Nimitz, uh, an amazing story of a country boy from the middle of Texas who uh, saved the country. Yeah. <laughs> Just really good. And that uh, there's a book, I can't remember the author, but it's a good biography, uh, easy read, and it gets into his personality and those of several other admirals. Uh, the Admirals is a good book. It's about the five major admirals, four or five, uh, in World War II, and breaks down each one of them and their strengths and weaknesses. They'd be Ernie King and Nimitz and their names, but the, the guys that uh, really ran the Navy in World War II. Well, if you if you were to write a book about your life from little kid to, to now, and I won't hold you to this, nobody will hold you to this, but what would the title of that book be? Well, I'd have a hard time thinking of a title, but I can tell you that is an unmotivated, lazy, lackadaisical, misdirected, unguided college student. I was doomed for failure of some sort because I was not making any progress. I was just spinning my wheels and having a good time and uh, chasing girls and drinking whiskey. And that wasn't getting it. And this opportunity I had, it came to me by these, really by these two uh, guys, these fraternity brothers, uh, 
for the first time in my life, I said, I want to be a Navy jet pilot. And uh, so that turned everything around. Yeah. I wanted that more than anything I'd ever wanted. And that includes a Schwinn bicycle when I was 12 years old. You know, I was, uh, I wanted it with all that teenage want. And, uh, and I was fortunate enough to get it. So that's from, from something to, uh, to success through very good luck. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I guess. Yeah. Uh, good luck and good leaders. Uh, I had many, many good inspirations in my Navy career had some really good COs and some not so good COs and by the time I got to be a CO I could filter all that out and try to be the you know take the best of the best and uh, and I was not all that good but I at least I had plenty to draw on plenty of good examples I didn't run out of resource for for examples yeah I, I, that's uh that's an interesting kind of dynamic kind of relation back to entrepreneurship and just you know running your own business is when you work in, in the public sector, when you're working for somebody and, and you, you see what they're doing and you see how successful that is and you see the things that they do that maybe brings down the team or does, you don't feel is, is right, you can then take those aspects. And, and, you know, when you get to run your own business or when you're commanding your own ship, you know, you can really learn from others' mistakes and learn from their successes and then hopefully have a good foundation to start from. What's one piece of advice that you would give to somebody uh, that was thinking about becoming a Navy jet pilot? Well, I hate to start out saying well, but this I'm conflicted. Uh, I retired in 1990, which was, how long ago was that? Almost 30 years ago. And the Navy was much, much different then in many ways. And of course, the country was much different in many ways. But think very carefully uh, about whether you really want a career in the military. It's harder. Congress, particularly, is using the military, the armed forces for uh, social experimentation, which is a big mistake. Congress is underfunding the military, which means, and it's happened before, and I've been through these cycles, but it means that you're no longer flying the very best, most best maintained equipment. Um, and I think the current accident record, aviation accident, the Air Force and Navy is up. And these are all manifestations of underfunding and too much social experimentation. So the Navy's different, the Navy's harder, it can still, I'm sure, be very rewarding. And I'm sure that the commanding officer of the USS Nimitz today is just having as much fun as I did when I was CEO of a carrier. But he's working harder for it because he has fewer resources and more problems. I didn't have any pregnancies on my aircraft carrier because I didn't have any women on my aircraft carrier. Yeah. Uh, and I use pregnancies as just one example of the challenges that... Uh, prevalent in today's military. Distraction is a, is a strong word, but that's the only word that comes to mind um, when you're thinking about the safety of several thousand people on a ship going into a, going into war or just in general. Uh, when you have distractions like that, it can be anything. It could be somebody that's having a problem with alcohol. It could be a, a, a woman who's, who's potentially going to be given birth that you didn't know about. You know, there's just all those distractions that there's enough distractions with knowing that enemy's coming and they don't care what it takes to kill you. Right. Um, and if, and if you have, if you can eliminate those distractions before you go out, I think that would be a very advantageous thing for our government to do. Well, I can guarantee it because there will be enough distractions are just add to the challenges mm -hmm. and there will be plenty of challenges if everything goes perfectly there's still enough challenges to go around. So if you can stack the deck as best you can before you go, that just makes sense, I think. 
And uh, kind of makes sense in in anything, in, in any enterprise, any mm-hmm. any endeavor. That's what we all try to do. Like you ought to be sure you've got gas in your tank before you start the engine yeah. and before you take off on a long trip. Yeah. Uh, well, I've got one last question for you. Um, it kind of deals with everything we talked about from from your growing up to to now. Uh, you know, being able to look on this this beautiful river here, and uh, you and your wife travel the globe as much as you as much as you can. Um, when you look back on all those men, all those men that you commanded, and the people that you worked with in the city colleges and in the real estate development, and you look back at your at your kids and your family and the community here and the community that you've impacted, what do you want them to remember you by? And what does that legacy look like when you when you leave this earth and go to heaven? Well, I have not worked particularly hard as a civilian to try to ensure any kind of legacy. I have not been that forthcoming with volunteer work. I used to, but I, in recent years I've done very little. So I haven't thought much about a legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would guess uh, the most I can hope for is uh, people will consider that I was an honest person and uh, and a good neighbor. And I don't know that I could be any more honest, but I uh, I could probably be a better neighbor. So <laughs> maybe you'll encourage me. Maybe you are encouraging me to work a little harder at developing a, a better legacy. But I credit the life that I've had, with, and it's been a good life, and uh, it's been mostly because I've had a good wife, uh, a very supportive wife and family. And uh, that's extremely important, I think, to peace of mind. And when you can go off and go away for nine months at a time and know that things are going to be taken care of at home by a very capable woman uh, who can play mother and father, uh, give credit to my wife for the success of it uh, couldn't have done it without her. And it goes on today. Yeah. yeah I think it's very important um, to have that family buy-in, even, you know, with with owning a business or, you know, going off for nine months, you know, having that family support system really helps you to be able to focus on the task at hand and, and supporting the family and the, leaving the legacy of, you know, your daughter and your grand, your daughters and your grandkids, you know, seeing how hard you worked to provide for them, and uh, you know, the legacy that you leave uh, for for grandkids and, and just for the community that you've impacted is is going to be um, it's going to be incredible. But Jack, thanks thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for inviting me into your office to look at all these awesome pictures and <laughs> flags and aircraft carriers and battleships and. I appreciate your time. Well, it's my first interview and I've enjoyed it. Hey, this is your host, Tony Oravet of the Leadership Legacy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this past episode. It would mean the world to me if you would go and rate this podcast on iTunes and share it with your friends. Show notes and information on today's guest are on leadershiplegacy.show. 